Hello. Thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exist to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in his gospel. Now, please enjoy the Sermon Podcast. Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Hey, I just want to remind you, we've got extra seats at the earlier gathering, so we'd love for you to join us if you are able, and we really uh, want to, we are one body, and love to gather together, um, not only here as we gather together, but also, as David mentioned, in our communities across the area, and listen, this is a new season for us as a church, we're so excited to have you here if you're new, if you've been in the mix for years, and maybe you're just kind of re-emerging through the pandemic, uh, we just love to help you get connected. And as David mentioned today, right after is a free lunch and uh, an awesome opportunity to connect. And so we'd love to have you there. We have child care available as well. Uh, my name is Joey, and I have the gift of serving as lead pastor uh, alongside of an incredible team here. And it is just a joy uh, to run together. So uh, you ready to dive in here a little bit? All right. Um, before we, or as we get into the word here, I just want to give us a little background on this series. And there are uh, some booklets um, that should be under your seats. And if you're on the, they should be along the side of the right there. So if you're on the far right of your row, you get to count the people in your row and pass them down. And I think we might be pretty close to being out of them. So if you're a couple, just take one for right now. Um, and uh, if there are extras, pass them around so we can um, get those as well. This is where we're headed over the next four weeks. Uh, What we've um, developed these booklets, they're really uh, to equip us as a body as we join Jesus in what he's doing. Um, Let me get your attention here. I know, you know, this is like classic classroom stuff, right? For those who are teachers, what's going on? Wow, that was, I don't think it was that funny, but... Um, this, this week, yeah, so keep them closed right now. Though there is a section where you can take some notes uh, on page 33 for this morning. Um, but this week, uh, we want to encourage you to work through the introduction and then also session one, his story. And again, in our groups, we'll be discussing it. And this is a resource for you. A lot of what's in here is going to be a refresher and a reminder and a necessary one, um, as we'll see in the passage this morning, exhorts us. Um, and for some of you, maybe you're just, uh, learning about Jesus and his message for the first time. And this, this resource, um, what we're calling estuary, the church unfurled, uh, is really a rooting and a grounding of what it means to be a disciple who forms disciples and the basics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the world. This vision uh, came out of a, a number of conversations and times of prayer with some leaders in our church. While I was home from Oxford uh, in, during Hillary term, this is like in the January, February time frame, Um, we were just asking the question, this pandemic is impactful to the world and certainly to the church. And so we began asking the question, well, what what would it look like for the body of Christ, for the people of Jesus to exist in this sort of new world we find ourselves in? In a way, the world isn't all that new. I mean, these things have happened throughout history, but it certainly is a new season for at least Western American society. And, um, And so we just felt like we wanted to pray and ask the Lord, what would it look like for the people of Jesus not just to exist in a sanctuary, uh, but actually to exist and live 
in the estuary. And you say, well, what's an estuary? An estuary is where two rivers come together. It's a, okay, it's not like actually in the Bible, but it's, it's a picture for us um, that will guide us as we're following Jesus uh, in this next season. Um, the Chesapeake Bay uh, is a little picture. I took this photo back in, in around January or February. Um, we can go to that, the picture here. Let's see if we can pull that up. There we go. Uh, it's not a great picture. It's a little small. Um, but uh, in, in the original picture, what you can see is there's, there's some waves happening on the water. And an estuary is, is not a safe space. Uh, it's a volatile environment. But it's also one of the most uh, nutrient-rich areas um, for, for growth and for formation. Um, estuaric environments are among the most productive on Earth. I love how there's some parallels here. Um, the sheltered waters of estuaries also support unique communities of plants and animals adapted for life at the margin of the sea. Uh, and I know a lot of us in this last season, if we've been inhabiting that space on the margin of the sea, right? where there's this vast, scary place before us, and yet the Lord is here working. We just thought as we prayed, Jesus found himself in an estuaric environment in the first century, you know, barbaric, under Roman rule, um, not that safe of a space, and yet this is the point at which he decided to send his son into the world. And what we find Jesus doing in fact, most of the time, Jesus actually isn't sitting in a pew in a church or a synagogue. He's certainly spending some time there. But most of the time, he's actually out in the landscape with people. And what is he doing as he's going? Well, Luke 10 teaches us he's training and encouraging small groups of believers to go and to be sent out into the estuary, as it were. And he doesn't just teach his disciples to do that, but he lives that out with them. That's the Gospels. If you read it, you see Jesus with his followers working through the landscape. And he doesn't just do it with his followers, but actually the book of Acts, as it unfolds, it mirrors this, and, it, and the first disciples are doing exactly what Jesus had taught. And so we see this really foundational pattern that's a little bit different than what many models of the church are. And we're not down on any particular model of church. We're just saying in this season where many of our friends and neighbors want nothing to do with church, they want to stay as far away from a place like this as possible, I wonder what it would look like. We wonder what it would look like for the people of Jesus to be radically available to him in whatever ways he would use. And that's a little scary, isn't it? Because that's going to cost you something. It's going to cost me something. It's going to cost us something. It means us thinking about our work, our vocational life in different ways. You know, it means, man, maybe the Lord Jesus would call you to begin a group of people praying for your business, for the flourishing and the thriving of your business, that his word, his gospel would take root in the place where you work. It might mean you're in a neighborhood with some friends. We have a, one group who's online, probably tuning in with us now. They have a, a real vision for Cape St. Clair, and they've started gathering together. We're excited to see a little house church, a little house gathering started in that neighborhood to reach that neighborhood. And we're going to stay connected with them, support them, encourage them. We're not really sure where this is going to lead, <laughs> but we are thrilled to be running together in this season. So buckle up.
Some of us in this season, you're going to get a, a strong call from the Lord of you know exactly what you need to do. And we want to encourage you, be obedient to that. And others are saying, I'm not sure, but I love what that team or that group is doing, and I want to jump on board with them. And on the back end, behind all of it, we are going to equip and train and encourage and strengthen you on the front lines to be radically available to Jesus. So that's a little bit of the background of the and the picture of where we're headed over the next few weeks. But this morning, what we want to talk about is a story. And this morning, what we want to talk about in this story is actually the foundational story and the most important story for every follower of Jesus. I'll be so bold to say that. This is the foundational story that we find ourselves in as followers of Jesus that we need to continually be rooted in. You and I both know that in the world we find ourselves now, there's a lot of competing narratives. There's a lot of stories and some of us have believed these sort of whim stories that sort of, you know, float through the news or float through social media. And we're like, that's me. I'm all into that. But we don't really take time to think whether or not that story actually has a rootedness, has a depth, has a history to it. Stories are powerful because what we believe about the world and what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves the stories we believe shape our imagination and shape our lives. And my prayer this morning is as we look at this story, it would reorient us and reroute us and reground us to the story that ought to define our lives as followers of Jesus. If you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus. This is like a great message to listen into because this is what we believe as Christians across the centuries, across time, according to the scripture. Probably the tightest, most ancient summation of the story we have in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 15. So you can turn there with me now. And we're just, I'm just going to read the first four verses. And it's going to be a little bit of a jumping uh, pad for us back to the whole grander story of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel... I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And this is God's word. What does Paul want to remind the Corinthians of in, in verse 1 here? You can shout it out. What is it that he wants to remind them of in verse 1? The gospel. It's so crystal clear there, isn't it? He's writing to a band of brothers and sisters in the city of Corinth. Uh, as, as you know, if you've read First and Second Corinthians, this body of followers of Jesus were struggling with a lot of things in that time. It was a messy, imperfect community. And yet Paul's writing to them, and he's saying, at the closing of this first letter, there's something that is so important that I have to remind you of. In fact, in the Greek there, it's to make clear. He has to make this clear to them. 
is he doesn't want to risk that they forget this. And he says this thing that he wants to remind them is the gospel, the euangelion, the, the good tidings or the good news or the good message. It's an announcement. It's a story that is an announcement. It's something that he's it's spoken. It's not just something that's lived out. It is lived out. But it's also something that's spoken with words. He preached to them. It's something that is received. It's something that we receive. So we, we, we absorb in to ourselves. And it's something that we stand in. So it's not just like, oh, I learned that with my head today, and then I just go on with my life as it is. No, this, this story, this message is so deeply transformative that it's acting, we, we're supposed to, to put to work in our lives. We're supposed to stand in it or live in it or act upon it. It's supposed to saturate every part of our lives. And then we find in verse 2 that it's, it's through which we're being saved. So we are saved by it, but we're being saved by it. That's a big theological word in the New Testament, sanctification. It's the ongoing work that Jesus does in us to shape us and form us into the likeness of Christ based on the work he did on the cross for us. And then in verse 3, there's sort of a, a tight summation of this gospel, sort of what we might call the climactic part of the story. What is it? It's that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. It's that he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, he says, Jesus died and he was raised, what? According to the scriptures. Now, the scriptures for Paul when he's writing are not the New Testament. Why? Because he's writing the New Testament actually as we're reading it here, right? So when, he, when Paul says the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament, the Torah, and he's saying, he has the audacity to say that the scriptures that were written, inspired by God, actually all pointed to this climactic moment when God would send his son into the world to die for the sins of the world. Isn't that amazing? In accord with the scriptures also points us to and hints us to the fact that the story is bigger than just this climactic moment. Yes, without the cross and the resurrection, there is no good news. But without the backstory, without the whole story of the scriptures, we lose sight of the why behind the cross and the resurrection. And so what this passage does is it throws us back to Genesis chapter 1. And what I want to do over the next few minutes is just walk us through the big story. So can we just sit in that for a few minutes here? Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's a little estuary-like, isn't it? And God said, verse 3, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that it was good. And from here through the rest of chapter 1 of Genesis, we know if you've read it, is the account of God creating the world. The competing narratives that we find ourselves in in this cultural moment say there is a story, and the story is mainly about you. It's mainly about your life and your comfort and what's best for you. That is not how God's story begins. God's story begins through and through with him. In the beginning, humans? No. 
In the beginning, God, in the beginning, God created. God did something. God acted in the world. He breathed, he spoke, and the world came into existence. Out of nothing, God creates. And this is so vital if we're understanding the story that we find ourselves in as followers of Jesus, that this story begins with God creating. God created a world that was good and true and beautiful and perfect out of himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He creates out of love. He creates a little later in chapter one, humanity, people, human beings in his image. And it is an incredible thing that God creates. There's a little vessel here that I want to just show you. And it's a picture, I think, a little, another little metaphor of, of what it means for God to create us. A lot of us think the, the story that we believe is that we're not enough, um, we're a waste, We've had stories and lies told over us our whole life. We carry those lies and those story, the lies of those stories with us through life. And when we look in the mirror in the morning, we forget that the story begins with God creating you and me in goodness, truth, and beauty. Perfectly created vessels. The natural world, the air we breathe, the vistas that we view, every human being on the planet created in the image of God, came from God, was created for God. Beautiful creation. That's how the story begins. Can, I, can we just be rerooted in this reality? This is so important that we understand that the story begins with God and that God created us and the world in perfection. There was a beginning and a shaping. And this week in our groups, as you're working through this booklet, you'll find there's a way that our story actually resonates and mirrors, follows God's story. Each of you have a beginning. Each of you have a story that God created things about you, gifts in you, personalities in you that are good and true and beautiful. This is a good thing that we can celebrate as people. This is the beginning of the gospel narrative. This is the beginning of the good news. But shortly after that, as we know, there is a tragedy that takes place. In Genesis chapter 3, let me just read a few verses. There is a crashing and there is a breaking that happens. There is a crashing and a breaking the enemy of our souls, the serpent, as, it's, as he's described in Genesis 3.1, more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, said to the woman, our first mother Eve and our first father Adam, our first parents, this is the struggle in the garden they had, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Underneath the question is a question of whether or not we as human beings can sustain our own lives. Or do we need to play God ourselves? That is the core question the enemy is asking. Can you as a human being, do you really need God? I mean, what he said, do you really have to believe that? Because aren't you, create, aren't you this perfect being? And do you actually really need God in your life? And our first parents said, actually, we don't think we do. We will take life into our own hands 
And what came with this is a horrible, horrible, horrible crash. It's a painful, it's painful to hear that, isn't it? This is the shattering. This is the kind of shattering that happened in the human condition. Listen to the effect of this. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And listen in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Because what happens is that when we are broken... We feel it, don't we? I mean, this is where the reality of our sin is in our lives. We look in the mirror, and yes, we were created in goodness, truth, and beauty by our Father in heaven, but we also see the deep, deep sin in our lives. We see the deep sin in other people's lives who have affected us and hurt us. And we also just experience the pain of this, the effects of sin in the world generally, broadly. You can't necessarily pin it to a person. It's part of what sprang into the human condition and into the world out of the fall of our first parents. The question that the world is constantly asking in our day, how are things so bad? Why are things so hard? We see and we feel it in the news and we see it in the culture the gospel gives an answer to that question. It says because of this thing, this horrible, horrible thing, and it is a horrible thing called sin in the world. And the story goes on because when we are so profoundly broken, when our hearts and our lives are so deeply shattered, do you know what our impulse is? We want to try to put it back together. I mean, if you're like me, anytime there's a brokenness in my life, I want to hide it or I want to try to fix it. Can, can anybody relate to that? Like just hide, just don't let anybody see it or try to pretend like it's all together. And so we then try to be the glue and, and we try to just sort of piece this thing together and we, and we have all kinds of adhesives all kinds of things that we try to do to put our lives back together. And as the story of the gospel unfolds through scripture, probably the next major section we see that really expands through the Old Testament is what we might call idols. It's where the nation of Israel tries desperately to save themselves or to fix themselves or to heal themselves or to put themselves back together. There's many examples of this through the entire story of Scripture. Probably one of the best is Exodus chapter 32. You're familiar with it. But the Lord uh, Moses goes up on the mountain to meet the Lord, and he's taken a little while. And so here's what they say in verse 1 of chapter 32 of Exodus. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, They're, the people are telling the leader who's in charge, Aaron, get up, make, uh, get up, make us gods who shall go before us. And for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. They're doubting he's even alive. So they feel the brokenness. They're in the wilderness. They don't know what's going to happen. And so instead of trusting their father in heaven, 
They follow the path of their first parents. And they say, maybe we, if we build a golden calf, that can kind of, we can try to sort of put this thing back together called our life. And that just doesn't go so well, does it? Because another, another word for an idol is a drug. And choose your drug. For some of us, it has actually been literal narcotics that have been the thing that we thought would give us a sense of peace and shalom and pull us back together. For some of us, it's alcohol. For some of us, it's work. For some of us, it's ministry. For some of us, it's our grades or our record or our sales. For some of us, it's how well we perform at work or how good of a husband we are or how good of a mom we are or how good of a dad we are or how good of a friend we are. And we find all kinds of adhesives in life to try to tell the world and tell God, look, it's not as broken as you think. I'm really okay. I'm really not that bad. My life is really justified by these things over here. Don't look at that part. Just look, look here. I'm trying really hard to put it all together so you can see. And we fall into what the scripture calls deep, deep idolatry. Whenever we take something in this world and we use it in such a way, we worship it in such a way, we elevate it in such a way, it takes the place of God and the things that we ought to be depending on our Heavenly Father for, we start depending on ourselves for. This is idolatry. And this is a key, this is a critical part of the gospel story. Because here we are, the gaps that our sin creates, we try to fill. But thank God that the story does not end there. Because for the rest of the pages of the Old Testament, C.S. Lewis says there's a rustling on every page that God has not left us alone in our sin, that God has not left us alone in our brokenness, that he does not ask us to fix ourselves, but that he would come himself. It's not that Moses would come down from the mountain. It's that God would come down from heaven. And it's not that what most religions and most narratives in our world proclaim, which is you have to fix yourself, but rather God in love says, no, you actually can't do that. Your first parents tried that, it didn't work. The nation of Israel had it didn't work. The watching world tries that ongoingly. It does not work. Every idol that we try to use to treat our sin leaves us more and more empty. And God knew this. And this is why in love, he sends his son to be for us what we could not be for ourselves. And this is spoken almost every page of the New Testament. The writers cannot get it out enough. 
The New Testament, every page, they're constantly saying, look to Jesus, look at his death, look at his resurrection, look at the love that is behind that. God has come to rescue broken humanity. And of all the places, there's many summaries of it. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of those places. Uh, But one of the places that I love the most is Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6, because I think it is a painful but honest and beautiful picture of what the good news is for a person who is struggling with the realities and the depravity of sin. Here's what Paul writes. For while we were still weak, you just have to have a certain level of humility that God has fostered in your life to get to that point. How many of us in here are weak? (laughs) Okay. It's hard to raise your hand at that, isn't it? Like everything, no, I'm strong. No, at at the, at, while we were weak, Paul says, at the right time, at that moment, at that moment when we get deeply in touch with the depth of our weakness, what happens? Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one, must, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. A couple of weeks ago, my daughter and I had the chance to travel to New York City and we took part in, in what was called a kintsugi workshop. And kintsugi is an ancient Japanese art form. When a vessel shatters, it's actually not thrown away, but it's actually fused back together with gold. And it's fused back together in a way that does not ignore the wounds. It doesn't ignore the imperfections. It doesn't ignore the story that we grew up in. It doesn't ignore the effects of sin in the world. What it does do, though, is it puts it back together. And this is God's work. This is a picture of God's work through the cross on our behalf. Is that by Jesus' very wounds, we are found to be healed. We are found to be made whole. And one of the most amazing things about the gospel story is this. Competing narratives say, you just need to be fixed. Even other world religions just say, you just need to be fixed. You're broken and you need to be fixed. The gospel says something really unique. God in his love says, you were created in goodness, truth, and beauty. You were broken by sin. You tried desperately to save yourself. But now I am putting you back together, not into what you were before, but actually into something infinitely more beautiful. God doesn't ignore the scars. He doesn't ignore the wounds. He doesn't ignore the pain. He takes that story, and what he does is he redeems it. This is why we call it redemption, because he takes that which is completely broken and dead, and he brings it back to life And he puts it together in a new way, in a way, in an unexpected way, in a way that we might not have known. If we are going to be a people sent out, radically available to Jesus in whatever he would call us to, this story 
is critical for our grounding and rooting. We have to operate and live out of a story. Thankfully, the story doesn't actually just end there. As we know in Revelation 21 and as the New Testament unfolds, we discover in Jesus' teaching that he actually is raised from the dead, ascends to heaven, and is now ruling and reigning and waiting to return where he will one day make all things new. All the brokenness, even that we continue to experience today, he will bring back together at the completion or the end of all things. You guys, this is the story we find ourselves in. This is his story. This is the gospel story. This is the story that will compel us and motivate us because out in the field, out in the estuary, it's going to be really hard. But God has called us as a family here, as a team here, to be equipped, encouraged as we go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for inspiring Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. Thank you for this precious gospel that is like a diamond. It is so multifaceted. It can be spoken in a few words and it can be unpacked over a lifetime for many, many lifetimes. The deeper we get into it, the more beautiful it becomes. The deeper we get into the story, the more it will cost us. And the deeper we get into the story, the deeper we're found to be in your love secure, redeemed, restored through the blood of the cross. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, those who have identified you as Lord, who have turned from their sin and received this gospel, that you would strengthen their hearts today. You would encourage them and you would speak to them over these next four weeks as to where you are calling them to go, who you're calling them to pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.